your outlines if you would and we are trying to deal with a very very important subject in the word of God how to worship God how to approach uh, the Lord and uh, last week we spent on basically uh, different things a, 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 a generalization here a summary of It is not truly us who approach God as much as it is God is interested in making a way for us to approach Him. God is the instigator of all true worship. This is one of the great lies of all religion through all ages of all kinds is where Man makes his own set of rules to approach God. And uh, this is why we call our church, Open Door, Bible Baptist. I had an interesting discussion with one of the real estate agents. I mean, uh, insurance agents. We were talking, negotiating, and trying to work out the insurance for uh, union and and uh, he was talking about uh, an organization that does benefits. And I said, yeah, you have to belong to a bigger organization uh, to do that. And uh, I said, uh, we're all, he says, so you're independent, independent Baptist. And I said, yeah, that's us. Uh, and uh, so uh, what we are trying to do here is we're trying to understand, we are trying to be as biblically, as, uh, as Bible as we possibly can. We want God to establish the rules. If God has already said something, then why should we try to improve on it? Uh, why should we try to alter that? And the tabernacle gives us a, a living illustration of everything. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. And uh, we have been through the tabernacle several times, and so I'm endeavoring to take a little different approach each time that we do not just simply repeat the old outlines and things. But tonight, what I want us to do is to look for God. In the tabernacle, where where is the presence of God denoted? And uh, let's start in Exodus chapter 25. And uh, we'll be coming back to this passage several times during the night, picking up different aspects here. But in Exodus chapter 25 and verse, uh, let's start reading in verse 21. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark... Thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Now, what God is telling Israel here, and of course we're just breaking into the middle of the passage here because we want to uh, uh, get this one point. God is saying, I am going to meet with you at the mercy seat. God says, I will commune with you. 
Now, the idea of meeting just simply means that two people are in the same place. I mean, we often talk about having preacher's meetings or preacher's fellowships or, or the fellowship meets. And the idea here is that uh, as pastors get together, they will communicate with each other, hence the word commune, uh, where to encourage one another, strengthen one another. And, and uh, I uh, am not one of those preachers who will stand here and say, I don't need fellowship from... No, I have to have fellowship from other pastors. Every preacher needs that uh, for many more reasons than just simply, I need to see my friends. Uh, one of the things that happens, especially at meetings like the graduation preaching week, is you get preached at. You know, normally I'm the one doing the preaching. And, and uh, there are times when I need a preaching too. Uh, that and I used to always go to the fellowship meetings as a young pastor saying, boy, I got this need and I got this need and I got this need. Well, now one of the primary reasons I go to the fellowship meetings is, Lord, what can I do to encourage others? And there, there is a, a wonderful thing in the Bible. Jesus isn't kidding when he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And, and I got two short prayer requests before I forget them. Uh, Miss Kathy Davis is having an MRI. She's been having some health issues here, and they can't figure it out. And uh, uh, the only MRI in the area is one of them old little tubes that they shove you in. And Miss Kathy is, uh, if you look up the word claustrophobic in the dictionary, it's got her picture right there. And she is really affected by that. And so... Would you pray for her Saturday as she's having the test that God would just calm her spirit and uh, allow that to happen there? And also, um, there was this little church in Shokan, West Shokan, New York, uh, about 40 minutes from where Brother Hiram is. And we knew about the church, but we'd never, neither Brother Hiram or I, and all the time that we'd known each other, uh, have been able to make contact with this preacher, find out he's 81 years old, uh, very ill health, and he's contacted Brother Hiram about trying to supply the pulpit and keep the church doors open, much like what happened with community. And so pray for Brother Hiram. Uh, we've been, Brother Hiram and I have been praying about preaching stations there in the Catskill Mountains for years, and and if you remember, we talked about a Catholic building that he was trying to get three or four years ago, and that fell through, and a Methodist building a couple years ago. Now it's a Baptist building. And what more could you ask for? A church, a parsonage, even a mission home, and everything right there, just beautifully. And not, not that it doesn't need maintenance and work. Everything needs maintenance and work. I said, Brother Hiram, the... Uh, he said, the building used to be located where the reservoir is now. So back all those years ago when they flooded the entire valley and made the reservoirs for New York City, they just put the building on rollers and carts and actually moved the building out of the valley up to the place to where it is today. I said, wow, that church has got to be almost as old as yours is. He said, no, older. And his building was built in the 1840s, I think. So this is crazy 
but, uh, you know, the Lord, uh, as Brother Hiram said, the Lord does work in mysterious ways, does He not? And, and so He is answering prayer. Keep, keep them in prayer if you would. But the idea here is that God wants to meet. He wants to commune. He wants to have fellowship. And yet, if you'll remember from last week, we, we found that phrase, and we'll touch again on it tonight, that he die not, that they die not. Approaching God the wrong way was a capital offense. God was very, very serious about his holiness. And he said, here at this mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, inside the Ark of the Covenant was the tables of stone written with the finger of God that God gave Moses. Now, remember, this was the second set of stones. The first one, Moses broke at the base of the mount when he saw the idolatry of the children of Israel. And Moses cut out two new tables to match the first ones And he took them up and God wrote on the tables the second time his laws. You know, people often question, well, the Bible's just written by man. No, it wasn't just written by man. It was copied off of those tables written with the very finger of God. Uh, That is an amazing thought, is it not? And we, we need to understand and we need to pay attention to the very words of God. What else was inside the ark? A golden bowl of manna. God told the children of Israel, when the manna appeared, I want you to take a bowl of manna and I want you to lay it up before your generations. Now, I want to challenge you. Did anyone, was anyone able to look at the bowl of manna inside the ark? Uh, No, the ark was sealed. Nobody touched the ark. In fact, how many of you remember the story of Uzzah with King David? They put the ark on a cart and the ark was, the the oxen were pulling the cart across the the threshing floor, a smooth stone, and the ox stumbled and the ark began to rock on the cart and Uzzah said, you can't leave the ark of God fall off the cart. And so he reached out and steadied it and died. The ark was not meant to be touched. These things weren't meant to be looked at and gawked at. They were meant to be understood. They were there. And the other thing that was in the ark was Aaron's rod that had budded. How many of you remember that story? We'll get to it in our Sunday school here and. a couple weeks. There was dissension among the tribes of Israel. Uh, Dathan and Abiram had uh, rebelled and said, we're just as important as you are and uh, all of God's children are the same. And, and God said, okay, I want you to take a rod, just like the rod that Moses had in the land of Egypt, and I want each tribe to put a rod and lay it up in the tabernacle. And God said, I will give you a sign which rod I have accepted. And Aaron's rod budded put forth flowers, 
And the next morning when they went in, there were ripe almonds on a dead rod. And God said, take that rod and put it in the ark as a testimony that I have chosen only Aaron and his family to meet with me. These things are all found in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. The main issue, the main concern with the mercy seat is the forgiveness of sins. That was the main... God says, I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to commune with you. But what does God have to do before He can meet with us, before He can commune with us? He must cleanse us from our sin. How many sins can enter heaven? None. Someone asked, well, why couldn't God just let one little sin in? Well, didn't Adam and Eve start with one little sin in this world? And I mean, look at the mess we're in today. God's not going to allow that to happen in heaven. God's not going to allow that to happen ever again. He has made a way for us to be forgiven. And the mercy seat is the center of of God's forgiveness. Let's turn to the book of Leviticus in chapter 16. Leviticus and chapter 16. Now these are the ordinances for the day of atonement. This entire chapter. And uh, let's just start right here. In verse 1, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord spake unto, said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil, before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in a cloud upon the mercy seat. So, God is telling us and explaining that the forgiveness of sins was something that was, number one, it was God's providence. It was God's plan. It was God's work. It was not the work of the priest that obtained forgiveness. It was God's work. And Aaron was told, you don't come into the most holy place every day. In fact, he was only allowed to open that veil twice on one day. And if we took time to read the entire chapter here, we would have all the ordinances of the Day of Atonement just in a brief summary and encourage you to read this chapter uh, a little later. Uh, to bring out everything and fill out all of this. But he would take a, a young bullock, a yearling bull. He would kill that he, uh, bull. He would take a golden bowl and, and gather the blood of that bullock. He would then walk into the holy place and take a censer full of coals from off the brazen altar. And he would put incense on that and he would reach behind the veil and he would fill the most holy place with smoke, with the smoke of the incense. Now, there was no light 
in the most holy place. The candlestick was on the outside of the veil. Inside the veil was total darkness. It was part of the symbolism there, if we can just take a little aside, is that the way to God was not yet made plain. Man could not approach God. Man cannot look upon God, for he is holy. And he would fill that area with smoke, and then he would put the golden censer aside, and he would dip his hand in that blood, and he would sprinkle it seven times on the mercy seat. He would then go back outside, and he would sacrifice the baby goat for the nation of Israel, and he would do the same thing the second time. Then they would take the living baby goat and a man would run out into a wild, uh, deserted place where no one lived and he would let the goat go. That was the scapegoat. The, then another man, a priest, would take the bodies of the two animals that had been killed and take them outside the camp and burn them completely so nothing was left. And God would meet with Israel and he would forgive their sins. The Bible word for the Old Testament is atonement. Now, the ideal behind the word atonement is rolling back. Is making an agreement. And what God was saying to the children of Israel, I will meet you at a mercy seat. I will put off exacting the judgment for your sins until the true sacrifice, which we know is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, would be enacted on Calvary's cross. Nearly 1,800 years after the tabernacle was built here at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so, as we look at all of these regulations that are here, we have to understand just one thing. I've often heard people ask, well, what, what keeps me out of heaven? There is only one thing that keeps you out of heaven, and that is your personal sin. That is the only thing that keeps you out of heaven. And the only person that can stop you from obtaining God's forgiveness for your sin is yourself. All you have to do is believe what the Bible says about your sin. I've, I've had people say, well, you know, that, that whole thing about evolution and creation, I just can't believe creation is too simple. I said, okay, well, let's just back up a moment before we try to deal with that. Let me ask you a question. Can you believe what the Bible says about sin? Oh, yeah. I mean, the Bible's dead on about sin, is it not? I said, could you believe what the Bible says about how God has arranged to forgive us our sin? Could, would you believe that God had the children of Israel build this tabernacle, a living illustration of how God wants to take care of our sin? If you will be able to believe about your sin, God will help you take care of your doubts about creation. Amen? 
and anything else that you may have doubts about. The thing that we need to understand is without forgiveness of our sins, we cannot see God. But turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. And, and these are verses that we review often because they're, they're very difficult verses to live by. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer in verse 12, as He's teaching the disciples and all Christians, including us today, how we ought to pray. He says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Skip down to verse 14. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. God's forgiveness. To accept God's forgiveness for your sins demands that you must be willing to forgive others their sins against you. That's how powerful God's forgiveness is. Uh, I just shudder at the thought of how many psychiatric wards in this nation of ours is just stock full of people to overflowing because of guilt. You know what guilt is? Unforgiveness. And, and how many times have I heard, well, I know God can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. Excuse me? So, you're bigger than God, right? Uh, your opinion is more important than His is? Yes, I'm being sarcastic, but we, we just got to get a hold of this. How foolish it is to, to put your thumb in your suspender straps and say, oh, I can't forgive myself. I've done such a terrible thing. And I know people who say, I can't forgive others for what they've done. There is no forgiveness for those things. Well, I, I want to tell you something. What makes this book called the Bible different than any other religion known to mankind is that one word. I've often told the story, this goes back to the year uh, 2000 or 2001, I believe. It was not that long before the 9-11 attacks. I got a phone call and uh, a man said, I, I want to come and I, I want to talk about uh, religion. And I said, okay. Well, I found out that he fancied himself some prophet of Islam or something, and he was going to convert me to Islam, uh, which I found rather humorous. And uh, we began discussing different things, and it, it was hilarious because he was showing me quotations out of the New World Translation. How many of you know what that is? Uh, that is a Bible specifically published by the Jehovah's Sickness, I mean witnesses uh, that is personally perverted to fit their own doctrine. Uh, they decided that they didn't like what this Bible said, so they changed their Bible and they came up with their own translation. And he's quoting this thing to me like, I said, sir, I said, that, that is, uh, if you want to talk about the most worthless translation of the Bible in English, that's it. Uh, why would I pay any attention to anything you say? And, and we kept going back and forth. And finally, I, I said, sir, I said, let me tell you the difference between your faith in God and my faith in God. 
I said, I, I, I believe I can sum it up in one word. And he looked at me and said, what's that? I said, forgiveness. I wish I had a camera. I'll tell you that every time I tell the story. He stood up and pounded on my desk in my office and said, there is no forgiveness. And I said, that's the difference between your God and my God. My God is all about forgiveness. Everything He has done, everything that is in this book called the Bible, everything that is in the tabernacle is centered around this mercy seat where forgiveness of sin, atonement for sin was obtained until the sacrifice of Jesus when He entered into heaven and obtained an eternal redemption for us. That's Hebrews chapter 9. And so, the mercy seat is the place where we receive God's forgiveness. This is the mark of true religion, of the Bible's truth, is that I can know my sins are forgiven. You see, every false religion says, well, you really can't know till you die, but do the best you can and hopefully it'll turn out okay. Would you buy a used car like that? I would hope not. Uh, would you make an investment for your retirement plan on, well, you know, the market goes up, the market goes down. We don't know what's going to happen, but try it out anyway. Would you do that? I would hope that you would have a little more carefulness uh, with your money, with a purchase of a vehicle or a house or something like that. Why aren't we more careful about our eternal soul? These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye might believe on the name of the Son of God. I always like to make fun of the Calvinists because they take the position of being the most educated and the most logical and the most learned And one of their main points that was developed in the Middle Ages by a lawyer named John Calvin was the perseverance of the saints, the fact that you cannot lose your salvation. Now, at first, we would all say, hey, we agree with that. Well, we do a fact that you can't lose your salvation because God's the one that gives it to you, amen? But we don't agree with the Calvinists because they see they also believe in unconditional election or irresistible grace is the fact that you have no choice about your own salvation. And so you're eternally saved, but you can't know whether you're part of the elect because if you did, you would presume upon God. So you're eternally secure, but you can't know which way you're going until you die. Now, you know what I like to call that? The the proper word is sophistry. It is the study or love of foolishness. So I'm eternally secure, but I don't have a choice, and I can't know which way I'm going. 
direct contradiction with the clear teaching of the Word of God that says, 1 John 5.13, the references in your outline, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. There's a purpose for believing in Jesus. It's so that you can know your sins are forgiven. Not hope so. Not pretend. You say, well, how can you know? Because the Bible says so. Well, that's kind of childish, isn't it? Well, would you read that verse up right there? Except ye be converted and become as little children, shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. I am willing to stake my eternity on the words of this book. Because we have a more sure word of prophecy, according to Peter, And Peter actually heard God speak from heaven on two separate occasions when Jesus was baptized in the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, we have a more sure word. And by the way, if you're not going to trust this book, what are you going to trust? Well, our church has been here for thousands of years. Wrong. Uh, The Orthodox Church, which is the third or fourth oldest representation of Christianity. Of course, that would make our Greek neighbors really upset because Orthodox is the oldest. No, it's not. The Orthodox Church wasn't started until Constantine started the Christian Church as the first Christian emperor. And we put those in parentheses because Constantine waited until he was on his deathbed to get baptized because he wanted as many of his sins washed away by baptism if he could. You see, if you're trusting in the water of the baptistry to wash away your sins, you're not trusting in the finished work of Jesus at the mercy seat in heaven, and you're not saved. There's only one way to know that you're saved, and that is to trust God with having done all the work necessary. To save you. I mean, could we just stop and ask the question, is there anything in your life that you haven't messed up at one time or another? Now, husbands, this is time to start making some points with your wife. Raise your hand. Say, yeah, I messed up. And uh, wives, it's time to make points with your husband and raise your hand and say, I know I'm perfect in nearly every way, just like Mary Poppins, but uh, I've made some mistakes. Amen? And all children have made many mistakes. That's why God gives you parents. Amen? But listen, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Have we not? God does not leave the work of our eternal salvation to the hands of man. He did it himself. That's what the mercy seat is all about. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. It says, nor yet that he should offer himself often. What happened in the tabernacle was a living illustration 
of what would happen at one point in all of history when Jesus Christ, God the Son himself, would enter into heaven and sprinkle on the real mercy seat. How many of you know what the real mercy seat is in heaven? It is the very throne of Almighty God. That's where Jesus sprinkled his blood. You know, people have often said, but, you know, uh, you can lose your salvation. Well, not according to the Bible, because if you were going to lose it, you would have to go into heaven and find the blood stains of Jesus that paid the price for your sins and wipe them off the lap of God. Do you think you could do that? No. You can't. God has made a way that you can't. Amen? Because God is the God of life. He is in the sin-forgiving business. God wants us to have communion with Him. And as we look at this tabernacle here, as we see gold, and, and I, I'm, I want to rework my illustrations. I'm just not happy with my little pencil sketches here, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but uh, the, the whole point of the, the tabernacle, the height of the tabernacle is the mercy seat. On the Day of Atonement, the blood of the bullock and the blood of the baby goat was sprinkled to obtain atonement, the forgiveness of sins, the rolling back of the penalty for another year. Anywhere you see pure gold in the tabernacle, it is picturing God the Father. Mercy seat, pure gold. The candlestick is pure gold. And we have lots of references here. In fact, the candlestick itself is called the pure candlestick. It was the only source of light. You'll know there's no, notice there's no wood in the candlestick. It is only made out of gold. Because light only comes from God. It does not come from man. God does not need the nature of man to enhance him. Here's an interesting one. The crown of the mitre. The high priest would wear a mitre, a bonnet, a special hat, and on that was a crown of the purest gold, and it said, Holiness to the Lord. And he was to wear that. On the shoulders of the high priest were two onyx stones. Each had six names of the twelve tribes of Israel, so that all twelve tribes were represented by name, and they were held... Uh, our King James Bible uses the old English word for ouches. And uh, the, the only way we use that word today is, ouch, that hurt. Well, no, these, not, no pain involved. These were just, that's the old English word for mounting or enclosure of gold. The breastplate held 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Guess what? They were held up by ouches of gold. And the references are all there. You see, God wants us to serve Him. But who really bears the burden? Well, the high priest was wearing the ephod or the robe with the shoulder plates. But there was, if we take this as we should, 
there was God that was really holding on to him. The priest was just getting to wear the garment. The breastplate, it was God holding on to the tribes of Israel. The Bible says that the priest would bear the judgment of God upon Israel in wearing their names and their representation over his heart, that God would not judge Israel. And you know, here's what God wants us to do. He's got work for each of us to do. We have to bear the message of Jesus Christ to the world in which we live. But if it's not God that's really holding the message, if it's not the Holy Spirit of God that's really doing the work, all we're doing is wasting our time and everybody else's. Isn't that true? All of this is represented and pictured in living color in the Old Testament tabernacle. Everywhere you see gold-covered wood, you see the God, gold, wood, man. You see Jesus Christ. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box covered with gold. The altar of incense, again, was made out of wood and covered with gold. The table of showbread was a table that was built out of wood and then covered with pure gold. The boards of the tabernacle were wooden boards and they were covered completely inside and out with gold. Now, just stop and we're just going to try to make a little application here as we close tonight. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What was inside the ark? The Word of God. His provision, the bowl of manna. His authority, the rod that budded. All of those things speak of Jesus Christ, do they not? The altar of incense is a picture of prayers. How how should our prayers originate? Jesus said that we're to ask God the Father in His name. Now, that doesn't mean that at the end of the prayer, all you have to do is say, in Jesus' name, Amen. It is asking God the Father for things that I am convinced that Jesus would pray for. How can I do that? (laughs) Right here. If my prayers start with the Word of God, they'll be the prayers that God wants to listen to. Amen? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. John chapter 6. That's the table of showbread. Everything that we have to relate to God, if we are going to worship God. uh, I love this. Let's just turn for a moment to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now look at uh, verse 19. It says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness, holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Jesus is the house. He is the conduit. Jesus is the only way that we can have Fellowship with God the Father. 
Everything is pictured in the tabernacle. As we look at the gold, we see the presence of God represented. The presence of Christ the Son represented. We know that He is our forgiveness. We live in a dark world, do we not? How many of you got saved late enough in life that you can remember all of the really wacky, crazy things that you believed before you trusted Jesus Christ? Before you saw the light of the gospel of Jesus? How simple it is. He is. He bears the burden. He is the one that strengthens us. Uh, Paul put it this way, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, belonging to, coming from the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, everything we do is supposed to be by God and about God. The Christian life sets me free from the most horrible tyrant that has ever lived. You know who that is? Me. You. You are your own worst enemy. How many people do you know that have destroyed themselves, their lives, and their family? Everything that they've worked for. I mean, it doesn't take long. You, you, uh, I don't encourage you to read anything about the life of Howard Hughes, but at one time, the richest man in the world died a death worse than any beggar drug addict on the street in an airplane. And the pilot of the airplane wouldn't even admit whether he was over American airspace or over Mexican airspace because Howard Hughes died of a drug overdose at his own hands. They found eight broken needles in his body when they did the autopsy. How many of you have ever had an IV? And the nurse missed the vein? I mean, that's painful. That's terribly painful. But imagine breaking the needles off and they just are there. This this man who at one time was arguably one of the most powerful men in this world, died worse than the most degradant homeless person living in New York City at this time. It's incredible. I I want the Bible. I, I don't want to trust what this world has to offer. I want to find, and I believe, the forgiveness of sins... God allows me to get past myself. Amen? You see, we see God the Father. We see God the Son. And we see them working in perfect harmony so that we, as priests, can minister in the holy place, not the most holy place, that's reserved only for God. Every day as priest as we ought to minister. It says in Revelation that God hath made us both kings and priests unto our God. I'll tell you what, you can't improve on the Bible. You can't 
and prove on the Bible way. And if you want to worship God, if you want to know that God will accept you, all you have to do is approach Him the Bible way. And all God's people say, let's pray.